Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. Tonight, we're going to feature highlights from Room Now Live 2023, the session called Spondyloarthritis Innovations. We want to thank the sponsor of this educational event, and that would be Novartis. We thank them for sponsoring medical education. In this pod, we have three expert speakers, superior researchers, leaders in the field, and they're going, I'm going to show you excerpts of their half-hour lectures. You can find the full lectures of each individual lecture and also a combined panel discussion on the Room Now website and our YouTube channel. Our first speaker is Dr. Atul Deodar, who lectured on five advances that he thought were important in spondyloarthritis. Second, Dr. Dennis Podubny from Germany is going to talk about the evaluation of the SI joint. And our last speaker is Dr. John Ravel from UT Houston, who'll talk about what does it mean to have a positive family history of AS. You'll enjoy these three lectures back to back, and at the end, we'll take your questions. Enjoy. You know, the importance of MRI in diagnosing excess arthritis cannot be overstated. We know that this MRI is very sensitive and can be false positive. And you probably have looked at this study before. This was a study done on 12, 20 healthy recreational runners and 22 elite ice hockey players. None of them had excess arthritis, But they underwent MRI scan of the sacroiliac joint. And the ASAS definition of positive sacroiliitis was met by 30 to 35% of healthy recreational runners and 40% of the ice hockey players. And what is this definition? This is a consensus definition of positive MRI, which states that on one slice of the image, if you see there are two areas which show sacroiliitis, which is bone marrow edema seen on stir image, which is the fat suppressed T2 weighted image, or if you see two consecutive slices and there is one area which is positive um, for bone marrow edema, then that is positive sacroiliitis. Clearly, this is oversensitive and less specific. What the figures show is an important teaching point. Where is this bone marrow edema in normal people? And that bone marrow edema in normal people can be seen in posterior lower ilium as shown in the middle figure on the right-hand side, or anterior upper sacrum shown on the top. And the very bottom figure on the right-hand side shows both anterior upper sacrum and lower posterior ilium. That's where, these are the danger zones. If somebody has bone marrow edema in these areas, that may not be because of an immune-mediated inflammation. That may be just because of excess activity. Erosions were absent in this study. So two white spots on the MRI is not specific and is seen in many healthy volunteers. So here is an important paper, data-driven definitions for active and structural MRI lesions for diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis in the sacroiliac joint. And what is their predictive utility? So for this, the authors looked at the original ASAS classification cohort based on which the 2009 classification criteria were developed. All these people who participated in this original 2009 classification cohort study uh, had MRI scans done. These were read twice. 
by seven central readers and by eight central readers. These are all experts. And they specifically looked for the sensitivity and specificity on SIJ, quadrant sacroiliac joint. Quadrants, there are eight quadrants of the sacroiliac joints and consecutive slices. And they looked for erosions, they looked for inflammation, they looked for sclerosis, they looked for fat lesions. And majority of the readers, these are all expert readers, had to agree for the presence of a definite lesion typical of axial spondyloarthritis with high confidence. And they were specifically looking at candidate lesions cutoffs for achieving specificity of 95%. And even more importantly, the same people who participated in this study were followed for 4.4 years to see that they really had axial SPA even later, 4.4 years later. And so the candidate lesions cut off achieving positive predictive value of more than 95% were selected. So very rigorous data-driven process. And what did they find? So here is the take-home message. I'm going to straight go to the bottom line here. Definite MRI lesions typical of axial SPA, there is a 3-4-5 rule. Very easy to remember, 3-4-5 rule. What does the rule say? It says that if there are erosions in three or more sacroiliac joint quadrants, or if there is bone marrow edema in four or more sacroiliac joint quadrants, or if there are fat lesions in five or more sacroiliac joint quadrants on one slice, and this is in the quadrants, okay, then it is highly likely, 95% likely, that this person has axial spondyloarthritis. So remember this 3-4-5 rule. All right, moving on to the third topic. Multiple choice question. What percent of patients progress from non-radiographic to radiographic axial spondyloarthritis over two years? A, 2%. B, 5%. Or C, 12%. Here is the answer. The progression from non-radiographic to radiographic axial spondyloarthritis is variable. What this slide shows is there are multiple studies have been done on this topic. The y-axis shows the proportion of patients or the percentage of patients that progress from non-radiographic to ankylosing spondylitis. And the x-axis shows the studies and the time period on which these studies were done. So the question that I asked was, what percentage of patients go from non-radiographic to radiographic at two years? So look at this number, 24 months. There are three studies. There is a study by Ruderman, which says 2% of the patients progress. Then there is a study by Dugados, which says 4.9 or 5%. And there is a study by Podubny, which says 11.6, which is like 12%. So if you answered 2%, you're correct. If you answered 5%, you're still correct. And if you answer 12%, you are also correct. Why is it that there are different, different answers we are getting on this question? What percentage of patients go from non-radiographic to radiographic? And the answer is these studies included patients with different, different baseline characteristics. The bottom line is 5 to 40% of patients with non-radiographic axial SPA will progress to radiographic axial SPA or ankylosing spondylitis over a period of 2 to 10 years. That's the important point. Now, the baseline characteristics, wait to see that my, in my third slide from now, I'm going to tell you which are the important baseline characteristics 
which predict which patient is going to progress or the risk factors for that matter. So here is an interesting study. This is the PREVENT study. This was published now a couple of years ago. Progression of non-radiographic XLSPA to radiographic XLSPA over two years in the PREVENT study. This is the phase three double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study of cecuconumab versus placebo. Patients were enrolled with centrally read sacroiliac joint X-rays. So if the expert central reader said this patient X-ray shows definitive sacroiliitis, fulfilling modified New York criteria, that would mean this person has ankylosis spondylitis. Those patients were eliminated. All right. Now, these patients underwent and they half the patients were on circuitinumab, half the patients were on placebo. Placebo went up to 52 weeks. The second year of the study, everybody received circuitinumab. In fact, the patients who were on placebo, even in the first year, many of the patients, they didn't want to take placebo and then they switched to taking circuitinumab. So on the right-hand side, what you're seeing, look at week 104, 3.3% of the patients went from modified New York criteria negative to positive, which means 3.3% of the patients on secuquinumab developed ankylosing spondylitis, and in fact, placebo, 2.9%. I mean, does that mean that placebo is more effective than secuquinumab? I don't think so. I think there are problems here is that, as I said, every patient over two years ultimately received secuquinumab, at least for a year, and many patients in the placebo group did not receive placebo for a year. Many of them, in fact, were receiving secuquinumab. But even more interestingly, look on the left-hand side, the red bullet, the fourth bullet here. When the patients had x-rays done at 104 weeks, and these 104 weeks and the baseline x-rays were given to the same experts, except the experts were not told which is baseline and which is 104 weeks, so they were blinded. 25% of the patients, the experts said, in fact, had ankylosing spondylitis at baseline. Isn't that interesting? That tells us that even experts cannot differentiate really what is non-radiographic and what is radiographic. It's completely arbitrary. The degree of sacroiliitis depends or makes the diagnosis of non-radiographic or radiographic. The point I want to bring up is it's an arbitrary diagnosis and it doesn't really make any difference. The last bullet point is also interesting. These were non-radiographic XLSPA patients and about 15% of them had already had syndesmophytes and we still call them non-radiographic. So even that name is a misnomer. So in the same study, if you look at the spine, which is shown in the cumulative probability plot on the left-hand side, 97% of the patients either on secuquinumab or placebo had no radiographic progression over two years at all. On the right-hand side, it shows that the mean change in the sacroiliac joint MRI, bone marrow edema score, and as expected, secuquinumab suppresses the bone marrow edema. Not surprising, it's an IL-17 inhibitor. Compared to placebo, there is much more bone marrow edema suppression. All right, so monitoring of axial SPA patients. I said that the, there is a difference in the baseline characteristics of the slide that I showed you earlier, based on which the radiographic progression is dependent. So what are the risk factors for radiographic progression, mostly in the spine, but also in the sacroiliac joint? Number one is male sex. Number two, smoking. Number three, active inflammation. Patients with high CRP, uh, and patients who have active inflammation on the MRI have progression, radiographic progression compared to those with low CRP or no inflammation on the MRI. 
and pre-existing syndesmophytes and also positive HLA-B27 and also blue-collar workers. These are some of the risk factors for radiographic progression in the spine and in the sacroiliac joint. The last bullet point is important and this comes from the ACR SAA Spartan treatment recommendations that in daily practice routine monitoring by MRI is not required. CRP should be monitored. One can do MRI of the sacroiliac joint to see if the patient is not responding to see whether the drug has taken away the inflammation or not. But routine monitoring is not required. And really there is no need for routine spinal x-ray and certainly no need for sacroiliac joint x-rays to see whether a patient has gone from non-radiographic to radiographic. Because as I said, even in the expert hand, 25% of the time, they make a mistake themselves. If you show them the x-rays two years later, they suddenly say, oh, this person has ankylosing spondylitis. When two years before, they had said this patient has non-radiographic XLSPA. All right, that brings us to the fourth topic here. Radiographic progression in ankylosing spondylitis. The previous one was radiographic progression in non-radiographic. This is the first ever head-to-head -head study of TNF inhibitor versus IL-17 inhibitor. This study is a surpass study. This is not even published in full form yet. I've taken these, um, this from the late breaking abstract from last year's American College of Rheumatology meeting. Secukinumab versus adalimumab biosimilar head-to-head -head study to assess radiographic progression in ankylosing spondylitis. The hypothesis was that secukinumab is better than adalimumab in preventing or in reducing the radiographic progression. These were active patients with ankylosing spondylitis and these were chosen to have all the risk factors that I told you. Nearly 80% of the people were males. Their mean high sensitivity CRP was 20, quite high. 73% had pre-existing syndesmophytes. So these are the risk factors for progression. These people who enrolled into the study were destined to have more radiographic progression. And the primary endpoint was proportion of patients with no radiographic progression. That means the MSAS change of less than or equal to 0.5. And these patients had X-rays and MRIs at baseline and X-rays and MRI at two years. Three central leaders, again, they read the X-rays before, they read the X-rays at two years. They were blinded for treatment and the chronology of the images. And here are the results. The primary endpoint was not met. The idea was that secukinumab will be better. However, there was slight numerical benefit for secukinumab, but really no statistical difference. 66%, nearly 67%, and 65% patients had no progression. So slight higher number in the secukinumab, but this is not statistically significant. The both the secukinumab 150 milligram, 300 milligram, adalimumab biosimilar, they had very similar number of patients. If you look at the tab uh, table on the left hand side, it shows you the change from baseline in the MSAS. For secukinumab 150, the change from baseline is 0.54, secukinumab 300 milligram 0.55, adalimumab 0.72. Again, slight numerical difference, not statistically different. So it was a negative study. And if you look on the right hand side, the cumulative percentage plots, they lie one on top of the other. What does that tell me? So my takeaway is technically the SARPAS study is negative. However, 
the spinal radiographic progression over two years in this population of patients who were destined to actually progress more, high number of males, high number of inflammation, existing damage, these are all risk factors, the spinal radiographic progression was very low, less than one MSAS point. And there was no significant difference between secukinumab and adalimumab. So it appears that IL-17 inhibitor is as effective as TNF inhibitor in preventing radiographic progression. I think this is a good news. And the last bullet point is once we start our patients on the biologic, whether it is IL-17 or TNF inhibitor, and ask them to stop smoking, we can't do anything much more than that to prevent radiographic progression because, as you can see, whether they are on TNF inhibitor or IL-17 inhibitor, their progression is very low over two-year period. Lastly, is blocking IL-17A, how are we doing for time? Yes, we have got a few minutes. How is blocking IL-17A plus IL-17F different than blocking IL-17A alone? Is it better? So this is the bimekizumab study in non-radiographic XLSPA and ankylosing spondylitis. Two different studies. B-mobile 1 was non-radiographic. B-mobile 2 is ankylosing spondylitis. And this is recently published in January of this year. So bimekizumab inhibits IL-17A and F. Both studies met their primary analysis, primary endpoint, which was at week 16. It was ASAS-40 as shown in the top those uh, line graphs and compared to placebo, uh, the drug was effective, not surprising. This is IL-17A and F inhibitor. The bottom colorful graph shows that the SDAS disease state, the red, which is the baseline, then the middle one is week 16 and then week 24. As you can see, as we go from baseline to week 16 to week 24, the green becomes more and the red becomes less. Red is the high disease activity or very high disease activity. Green is low disease activity or inactive disease. So by end of uh, 24 weeks, about more than 50% of the patients on bimekizumab have either low disease or inactive disease. So straightforward study, bimekizumab works. The question is, is this better than IL-17A inhibitor alone? And difficult to say because this study did not include, for comparison, what happens to IL-17A inhibitors. However, there's some curious things about this study. If you look at, if you compare biologic naive and TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patient within these two studies, so both studies, B-Mobile 1 and B-Mobile 2 included small number of patients who were TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. On the left-hand side, what you're seeing is ASAS-40 responses in non-radiographic XLSPA, B-Mobile 1 study, TNF naive and TNF inadequate responder. And the same thing I'm showing you on the right-hand side in ankylosing spondylitis. And as you can see, the responses are similar, at least the difference in the bimekizumab and placebo. And now you are definitely going to say, oh, the numbers are small. And you are correct. The numbers are very small in the TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patients, only 17 here and 10 there. One patient here and there can make a difference in the non-radiographic. Look on the right-hand side. Here also the numbers are slightly better, still small, 17 and 37. The difference between the placebo, the delta looks quite good. However, yes, I agree, numbers are small. What happens in 
psoriatic arthritis. So this is bimekizumabin, psoriatic arthritis, biologic naive, and TNF inhibitor, inadequate responder. Here, the numbers are not small. These are two different studies. Be optimal. Study on biologic naive, 852 patient. This is ACR50 response shown on the left for a biologic naive in B optimal. On the right-hand side, B complete. This is TNF inhibitor, inadequate responder patient, 400 patient again here. Now, these are two different studies we are comparing, but the delta looks very similar. Here is the delta. Looks very, very similar. So both studies made primary endpoint and response looks comparable. And lastly, looking at bimkizumabin psoriasis. Here the primary endpoint is PASI-90 response by number of prior biologics. So if you look at the line graphs on the top, zero biologic, one prior biologic, two prior biologics, and they're all lying one on top of the other. So again, it appears that there may be, and so I've shown you now, non-radiographic axillary SPA, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, and psoriasis. There appears to be that in patients who are TNF inhibitor, inadequate responder patients, they still get as good a response, maybe, compared to those who are TNF inhibitor naive. At least there is a signal here. Is there a biologic possibility? And this is my second last slide. Are TNF inhibitor inadequate responder patient immunologically any different? So I'm showing you a study which was published. This is an abstract uh, by Siebert, uh, Stephen C. Siebert. This is taken from Gusilkumab. So this is serum samples from Discover 1, Discover 2, Cosmos. These are three studies on Gusilkumab in psoriatic arthritis. Serum samples were collected and they looked at patients who are TNF inhibitor naive and TNF inhibitor inadequate responder. And they looked at the baseline IL-22, IL-17A, IL-17F, IL-6 CRP and SAA levels in that serum. And what you see here, those circles is patients who, had TN who were TNF inhibitor inadequate responder, the baseline serum levels for IL-22, IL-17A and IL-17F levels from pooled treatment groups were higher in TNF inhibitor inadequate responder than naive patient. Maybe that's the reason why blocking L17A and L17F in this particular population of patient gives you such a good response. Just your um, polling question, what do you think? You remember this is a, a male patient with a history of uveitis with intermittent inflammatory back pain for several years, um, uh, um, 27 positive. So do you think uh, this is Excel SPA now? And you have the following options. So Excel uh, spondyl arthritis, maybe you, you think this is just an osteoarthritis of sacroiliac joints, um, maybe it's uh, for you degenerative spinal disease, spinal discitis or other diagnosis or the diagnosis is unclear. So please vote now and uh, in, in a few seconds um, uh, I will show you the uh, correct answer. So let's have a precise look at uh, um, MRI images. So first here uh, in a stir sequence, we see that sacroiliac joints, uh, they, they both look 
quite good. Um, th there is no bone marrow edema in sacroiliac joints, but you see some bone, bone marrow edema in, in the vertebral body here of the fifth uh, lumbar um, vertebral body. So uh, what, what, what is this? You will see it on the, on the following slide. And here you see that there are no structural changes in sacroiliac joints, at least no SPA typical structural changes, but you have some capsule ossification here, and this uh, huge osteophyte was responsible for a picture of uh, ankylosis or pseudo-ankylosis on the X-ray. Um, but this has nothing to do with ankylosis as a part of axial spondylarthritis. This is um, a common degenerative finding. And then you have a degenerated disc here um, uh, with uh, some um, fatty metaplasia of the bone marrow, so-called modic two lesion, so old lesion. You saw also in stir that there was a little bit of inflammation here uh, around this. And this is the most likely explanation of intermittent uh, symptoms of this patient over the past years and not spondylarthritis. Just to be sure, let's have a look at wipe. We see here again very nicely this huge osteophyte capsule ossification with CD generated disc and nothing, nothing compatible with spondylarthritis, especially no erosive damage. So in this case, the diagnosis would be degenerated disc disease, no spondylarthritis, and if you answered osteoarthritis of sacroiliac joints, this will, will would also be correct because we have also osteoarthritis findings in the right sacroiliac joint. So let's have a look at a second uh, case. Uh, this is a male patient, 55 years old, with the same patient profile, and I saw those both patients uh, uh, within um, uh, uh, two weeks in, in the outpatient uh, setting. Um, he, he has also been referred to us by an ophthalmologist because of the presence of back pain on the background of uveitis. B27 was also positive. CRP uh, was normal. So let's have a look at um, uh, MRI. In this case, again, you have a stir, a picture on the left side and T1 weighted um, MRI on the right hand side and um, you might expect that uh, I will be asking the same question again. Do you think that um, in this case the diagnosis could be excel spondylarthritis or something else? So have a closer look at the images and then please try to answer the question uh, which diagnosis would you make in this case? XLSPA, osteoarthritis, infectious sacroiliitis, osteitis condensans, ELE, or other diagnosis, or the situation is rather unclear. So again, a few seconds to um, um, uh, answer this question, and then there will be a, um, an uh, answer to it. So in this case, uh, we see on stir uh, image a little bit of bone marrow edema. We we are here in a rather posterior part of the joint, so we see um, and here a little bit of bone marrow edema, a little bit here and uh, close to the capsule. I need to say that all these uh, areas uh, affected by bone marrow edema right now might be also 
manifestation of mechanical stress, an diesel part of the joint and the capsule. So this is not very convincing. And it is a big question now, uh, is it bone marrow edema related to spondyloarthritis or not? And as we discussed previously, um, in, in such a situation, it is extremely important to, to look at uh, a T1-weighted sequence to see are there uh, structural changes. And if we look at uh, T1, we see that they are there. Uh, so we have fatty metaplasia, we have uh, erosions. You see that uh, uh, joint uh, margin is uh, uh, clearly abnormal. You have also backfills, so repaired erosions, and you have also a bone barred, so a step just before the ankylosis. So finally, in this case, the interpretation of this tiny bone marrow edema would be absolutely clear. This is a manifestation of axial spondylarthritis, and the diagnosis could be made in this case. The problem is, however, that uh, things are not always what they seem, and uh, in the daily clinical practice, it is extremely important to identify what is true bone marrow edema associated with spondylarthritis and what is bone marrow edema related to mechanical stress. There's been um, several um, publications, several uh, attempts to uh, look at uh, uh, the prevalence of uh, mechanical induced uh, bone marrow edema, and this is uh, uh, work uh, which uh, evaluated recreational runners and uh, little ice hockey players. And here we had uh, really a big prevalence of bone marrow edema from 30 to 40 percent in apparently healthy uh, people without uh, any uh, back pain complaints. And uh, this study was also important to demonstrate the anatomical areas which are affected by mechanical stress in uh, these athletes. And we learned from this study that uh, caudal part of the joint and very anterior part of the joint, they are affected by mechanical stress. So if you see um, bone marrow edema or sclerosis in this or this area, um, there should be a suspicion that these changes might be related to mechanical stress and not to uh, um, inflammatory disease. There were several other works which demonstrated that uh, indeed bone marrow edema is quite prevalent in healthy subjects and people with chronic back pain in runners and in postpartal women. One of the most recent uh, works uh, uh, was dealing with healthy young uh, people from a population-based cohort and this study has identified that bone marrow edema uh, was present in um, uh, about 17 percent of uh, um, uh, uh, healthy people um, uh, with uh, uh, MRI of sacroiliac joints. So that means that the specificity of um, bone marrow edema, um, at least based on the results of this cohort, would be about 83%. And we need to learn how to identify uh, bone marrow edema that's, that is really related to inflammation. So the most important things are uh, the um, localization of bone marrow edema. So if it is localized in the area affected by mechanical stress, such as very anterior portion of the joint, it is non, uh, not specific. 
and also if you don't see any signs of structural damage, especially in patients presenting to you after two, three, four years um, after symptom onset, back pain onset, it would be highly suspicious that the, 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 there is no uh, inflammatory um, disease behind this. What could help us in imaging interpretation? We are working on uh, implementation of artificial intelligence method like um, um, uh, deep learning to detect active inflammatory and structural changes associated with spondyloarthritis. And the first uh, study um, was uh, quite successful. It showed that uh, the machine, the computer, is able to detect active inflammatory and structural changes uh, compatible with spondyloarthritis very close uh, to the uh, level to the judgments done by by the experts. So uh, this is work in progress, and uh, I do believe that uh, human intelligence is even more important than artificial intelligence, and that is why we're doing um, uh, many uh, educational efforts uh, to uh, improve uh, that differentiation between uh, inflammatory and all other um, problems uh, um, in the spine. And what you see here, it's ASA's online case library. This is an educational ongoing project where you can see um, um, quite a number of examples of patients uh, presenting with suspicion of uh, spondyloarthritis with and without a final diagnosis of Excel SPA where there is quite detailed explanation of clinical picture, lab findings, and also imaging findings. I um, uh, come to my take-home messages and uh, the diagnostic workup in patients with suspicion of excel spondyloarthritis normally includes proper use and interpretation of imaging. MRI of sacroiliac joints is a method of objective detection of active inflammatory, post-inflammatory uh, changes and uh, is very important, therefore, um, in the early diagnosis and differential diagnosis of Excel SPA. It is very important to stress that uh, bone marrow edema in sacroiliac joints might be related to mechanical issues, and um, the presence of bone marrow edema should always be uh, interpreted in the context of anatomical localization and presence of structural changes, and of course, in the clinical context. And finally, if we're talking about technical aspects, so T2-weighted, fat-saturated sequence such as TUR or TERM and T-wide-weighted sequence are normally sufficient, no gadolinium is needed, and the wipe sequence or another 3D created sequence is included now as an additional third very helpful um, uh, MRI sequence to make the right uh, uh, diagnosis in our patients. That's it from my side. Thank you very much for your attention. This was the landmark study in this regard. This is Seth, Seth Vanderlinden's study from 1984, where he did, he did the population study of 2,957 people from, from Holland. And what he found was that among individuals 45 years of age or older, 21% a B27 positive relative of a, a B27 positive AS patients have AS, as opposed to only 1.3% of actually B27 positive individuals in the population at large. So there's something about familiarity that seems to be going on here that uh, as far as 
the impact of B27 on developing disease. We thought, well, maybe what's happening is that in these families, there's a higher genetic load, that there, these other genes, the ERAP1, the, the uh, uh, IL-23 receptor and the like, were at play. So Ricky Joshi, who's actually in practice in Beaumont, uh, looked at this with our cohort, uh, looking at, at 312 uh, multi, uh, probands from multiplex AS families and 190 uh, uh, families where there was no uh, affected first-degree relatives. And we could not, uh, we did find that HLA-B27 was significantly more prevalent in familial versus sporadic cases of AS, about 95%. If you're uh, uh, people who are in familial AS, would be B27 positive, as opposed to around 85, 90% uh, of those where it's not familial. But beyond that, we really didn't see too much more with, with, with uh, other genes that, that this idea of heavier genetic load is at play here. Uh, this is looking at, at uh, a, a Swedish nested case control study. This is from a national patient registry. So the diagnoses were, you know, and one thing that's great in Europe that you can, they have these registries that, uh, that we could not do in the U.S. God knows you'd never get them. They had the government having everyone's medical records to do a, have a registry. That just doesn't happen in the United States. Uh, and the bottom line is this, this looking at, at, at a national registry and they matched up an index patient with, with, uh, 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 with the age and sex matched up to 50 uh, gener general population controls. And they found that, that indeed, that the overall risk for familial AS, that the likelihood of AS to be occurring in the family was 19.4. So very significant impact. Uh, if you have AS of a family member, you're also being more likely uh, to, to develop AS. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking more about that cohort later. So let's talk about one of the cardinal features of AS, which is chronic inflammatory back pain. Uh, there are criteria that are out there, starting with Andre Kalin, 1977, up to the more, most recent OSIS criteria in 2009. We actually looked at this, and they're all about the same. It's young, young onset, morning stiffness, improvement with back pain with exercise, but not with rest, uh, awakening late at night, alternating buttock pain, all alike. Uh, all of these, by the way, a uh, more recent study actually showed that the Berlin criteria performed better than any of the other ones. And that's actually what we use in NHANES. And in NHANES, what we found wa was uh, looking at chronic, about 19.4% of the U.S. population between the ages of 50 and 70, we found in NHANES to have chronic back pain. Back pain present every day for at least three months. 19.4%. That's a massive unmet need. But what was interesting is that like, we look at the, whether depending on, regardless of the criteria, Kalen, he says, gee, or the, either of the two Berlin uh, modifications, we see that the prevalence uh, of inflammatory back pain runs between five and six percent. That's, in other words, nearly a third of those with chronic back pain have chronic inflammatory back pain. It's also noteworthy that women were slightly more affected in men, and of course, whites were more commonly affected than the other patient groups. And so we followed it up with a study that was published last year where we then did a, we looked at everything that's ever been published about back pain. This is over 5,000 uh, articles that uh, Dr. Rian and I spent a huge amount of time on this. Uh, and I did the work myself, so I, I, I will, uh, and we found, bottom line, there's never been a paper published looking at chronic inflammatory back pain starting later in life. But when we look at the NHANES data, that 2.9% of the people in the U.S. population uh, 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 
uh, ha- uh, had chronic inflammatory back pain beginning after the age of 50. So this is a real entity that there's, no one's ever really studied. Now, there's a reason for that, because it, after in the later years, it, it gets to be, the concept of IVP gets less specific. It could be late onset axial spa, or it could be PMR, fibromyalgia, Paget's disease, or osteoarthritis. So that's probably why uh, even the criteria try to rule these people out, and so it's just not studied. So uh, Asim Khan uh, looked at, this is another sort of landmark paper from 1985, and he found that, that characteristic spondylate symptoms of having back pain, uh, uh, they weren't talking chronic inflammatory back pain back then, was more likely in B27 positive versus B27 negative family members. Uh, that Tarina followed that up and, and found that not only did first degree relatives fulfilling the osseous axial spa or ESG classification criteria have more inflammatory back pain, but they also had a higher level of disease activity and more psoriasis. Uh, Dijong uh, followed us up and, and found that features associated with spa or imaging abnormalities found 33% of seemingly healthy first degree relatives. And now here, in contrast to Dr. Kahn's original study, he found also in B27 negative first degree relatives. Uh, Karim Dugam from our group, we've actually published this back in, in 2020 in RMD Open, uh, looked, uh, looked at uh, 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 155 first degree relatives with chronic inflammatory back pain, 82 with mechanical back pain, and 162 with no back pain at all. And we, we, we saw that they are pretty much uh, 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 in fact, we found in the no back pain, they, were, they tended to be somewhat older. But what we found that those with inflammatory back pain had much younger age at onset, as you, as you can see, age 26 versus 40 with mechanical back pain, and, and also uh, a higher likelihood of having heel pain, those who had inflammatory back pain versus mechanical back pain. Uh, and, and then what he did was he compared the, those uh, first-degree relatives, the, the probands only, so one per family, with the, the, with the NHANES study, and what they found wa- was that the, that the, the first-degree relatives of AS patients were likely to have uveitis. Uh, 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 looking at those with NHANES who had chronic back pain were more likely to have, have uh, a younger age at onset. Uh, and a, again, as I said, uh, looking at an- another group, much higher frequency of chronic heel pain, interesting enough. And, but more importantly, as far, especially as far as the, the uh, FDA is concerned, is that we followed these people up with the chronic inflammatory back pain compared to the chronic mechanical back pain. And lo and behold, that those with the chronic inflammatory back pain looked at an average of 16 months later still had chronic inflammatory back pain, whereas the, most of the people with mechanical back pain had gone away. So this is a stable phenotype that lasts in first-degree relatives over time. Uh, uh, Vanderlyn now, uh, and this is a recent study that was just published, uh, uh, back in 1985, this is a different cohort than the one he did before. Look at 363 AS probands from Switzerland this time, the Swiss cohort study, and, and then he, he followed them over 30 years. Very I mean, remarkable study. And what he found was pretty much the, found, the same thing he found in the Netherlands, uh, that the, the lifetime recurrence rate uh, in B27 positive first degree relatives of AS patients was, was significantly high. However, what he found was that this is, this is sort of strange, that the risk for offspring in B27 positive uh, mothers is higher than, uh, than fathers. That, in other words, you're more likely to get disease from mom than from dad. 
so that, and, and that led to their hypothesis that female AS probands are genetically enriched with disease susceptibility genes. As I showed you before, Joshi could not see that. And in fact, if you combine that, that uh, two, these are two patient, uh, advocacy, uh, patient uh, societies. So these are people who are volunteering, uh, and we don't have confirmed diagnosis radiographically. But they found that, again, that, that, uh, uh, that we look at the mothers versus the fathers, and we found a higher prevalence in both the Swiss cohort uh, uh, as well as a slightly higher in, in, in a UK study of Matt Brown's that was just published. Uh, uh, of, of the mother passing on disease than the father. Uh, they didn't really see that in the Swedish study. Again, this is a national registry. Those are patient uh, advocacy groups. We have I've looked at this, and we, we could not confirm that. We actually found, and this time what we did is we examined the patients and the first-year relatives, and we x-rayed them. Uh, and and we, we looked at, at uh, 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 92 parent offspring pairs, and we actually found more transmission from the father. So I don't think... I don't think that we've established which parent is more likely to transmit the disease. But the question is, so you, 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 you have a patient with AS, and they want to bring their, their, their son or daughter in because they're worried because they have symptoms. So how can we work on this better? Well, this is the gene, this paper that was actually it was presented at ACR, uh, uh, well, that uh, looking at these so-called polygenic risk scores. It's been looked at in rheumatoid arthritis and the like. It's a hot topic right now. It's being looked at actually uh, at the highest levels with the NIH right now. And whether or not genetic profiling might be informative to develop disease uh, uh, symptoms prior to it actually developing. Uh, and they found that the definitive loci, like the classic IL-23R, et cetera, had limited discriminatory capability. So uh, Matt Brown and we were in conjunction with us uh, set out to develop and validate an optimal polygenic risk score to assist in the early diagnosis and identify subjects at high risk for AS. So what he did was he, we started with a training set with 8,000 Europeans. We contributed 1,040 to that group and 14,000 controls, as well as 6,000 people from China, China, as, I, as our former president would say. And he used as a validation set uh, 910 Turk patients and 430 Iranian patients. Uh, we had to try to get the North Koreans involved too, but they wouldn't play ball. Uh, just to sort of cross all lines. Uh, and it was interesting what they found. So if they looked at just B27 alone using re re receiver operator, uh, operator characteristic analysis scores, that, that B27 didn't do a bad job, wasn't great. We compared B27 alone by then taking all the SNPs that we found in, in, the, in the GWAS. And, and what we found is when we combined both the M they, they, if we took out the MHC, it wasn't that impressive, the, the RLC scores. But if we threw in the MHC using this polygenic risk score uh, paradigm that was developed, that it performed very, very well in, in Europeans. Uh, not so well in, in Chinese and intermediately well in the, in the Iranians and Turks. So that what they did, they had to reformulate that because I didn't show you the data, but some of the other genes we found in the GWAS didn't carry over into Asia necessarily. So they devised an East Asian polygenic risk score, slightly different. Here, of course, the Asians look really, really good. The, what, the Europeans, not quite so good. And again, we see an intermediate response between uh, uh, in, in the Iranians and Turks, probably reflecting the genetic admixture uh, in those regions between East and West Asia. But what's interesting, then we compare that with MRI, 
It actually was comparable to MRI and much better than CRP. So, so the question is, what are we going to do with this? Uh, one, this is actually besides the conclusion of the last slide. So what are we going to do with this information? Well, we found that the polygenic risk score actually performed slightly better. Men were slightly more likely to be B27 positive than, than were women in both Europeans and Asians, slightly, just, you know, 83 versus 78 percent, 93 versus 85 percent. So women were slightly less likely to be between some positive with AS, but this is ankylosing spinal line, this is not including axial spine non-radiographic. Uh, uh, and, and that there was a non-significant trend that the, the, that the, that the, the PRS performed slightly better in men than in women, but it still performed fairly well. So that begs a question that I'll just deal with in the last slide. And, and, and this is my take-home message. Although predisposition to AXPA has both genetic and non-genetic contributions to pathogenesis, genetic factors are, without any question, predominant influence. Over 90% of the overall disease causation is coming from genetic factors, okay? AXPA clearly clusters in families, particularly in HLA B27 positive first-degree relatives, but where more than one in five B27 positives will develop disease over time. Although, and this is important to note, that you will see other features of disease like psoriasis and the like, even in the B27 negatives. And the Lord knows I've certainly seen it. Seen it. Uh, the IBP is much more common in first-degree relatives of, of, of axial swab patients compared to, either the, compared to the U.S. population. And in those B27 positives, persists over time. So it's a stable phenotype. Uh, whether the father or mother is more likely to influence disease transmission is not definitely de determined. And despite all those exciting data with the polygenic risk scores, this is the bottom line here. Recent innovations in genetic testing may help in the diagnosis in symptomatic FDRs, we call it. Uh, but as a screening tool in asymptomatic relatives, without any question, God knows I've, li I've lived this, can cause far more harm than good. So this, this test may be useful 